Newly Eberty is the art and state of being a woman, and I think that should be celebrated. My name is Michelle Lyons. Welcome to the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast is for information only and not a substitute for consulting a healthcare professional. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. I'm Michelle Lyons. And I'm very pleased to have another learned colleague on to talk today about perinatal health. Um, Miriam Gamble, if you're a member of the Global Pelvic Physio Group on Facebook, and if you're a clinician, you should be. uh, Miriam is um, an admin for that group, and she rules it ruthlessly. Um, she's, she, she brooks no nonsense, but she also talks a lot of sense most of the time. She's uh, a highly experienced women's health physio specializing it's fair to say in perinatal health Miriam mm-hmm. yeah uh, as as one of Ireland's biggest uh, maternity hospitals um Miriam does work for the HSE but she does not speak on behalf of the HSE and her opinions voiced today are purely her own and we'll just we'll, we'll leave it at that um but she does talk an enormous amount of sense most of the time and I'm sure she's going to stay in that <laughs> in that vein uh today Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get where you are today? Um, well, I suppose I've been working as a physio for a good long time, but from the very start, I would have been involved in antenatal education, um, even as a baby physio, straight in there doing it. Absolutely loved it. Um, rocked through that a little bit of kind of neuro stuff as well, which is particularly useful in a pelvic health background. Um, mm-hmm. And then I've been doing maternity and pelvic health for over 20 years, I think, or close to 20 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was it's all a blur. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think after Brilliant. one or two years, everything kind of blurs, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, what Miriam is is modestly not saying is that she is highly specialist in her field um and again not only does she have a wealth of experience but she also has a depth of knowledge that um i think is is fairly unparalleled um so i'm really pleased to talk to you here today about what's going well in perinatal health what do we need to do better and i think maybe to start it off what do you think as pelvic health professionals we should be telling pregnant women particularly i would say first-time mothers well, I think there's so much information out there which can be so bamboozling for women um, mm. and so much of the information isn't necessarily evidence-based. A lot of it can be verging on the fear-mongering um, and I suppose it's our job to try and help get that information to them in a much clearer way and let them kind of navigate their way through this life change, this life stage that isn't, you know, isn't going to get them all caught up in fear and I can't do this and I can't do this and I'm not supposed to do this you know so many of them I mean every every week I'm having to tell people no you absolutely can lift your arms overhead like those old wives tales are still there there's lots of women who just you know they're so terrified to exercise in pregnancy and it's the basics it's about bringing back and saying look can you see our exercise guidelines have gotten a lot less conservative we Mm -hmm. used to have to say mild to moderate exercise we're now saying a moderate intensity exercise go for it have fun find what you like to do and do it instead of like spending nine months in fear because an awful lot of them are so terrified to move and some of that is 
was due to previous obstetric experience. And look, that's where our skills come in, how we can then explain that to them and, and tailor it for them and say, yes, OK, well, this is what you can do. You know, pre a lot of the time it's it's fears and it's guilt about previous losses, perhaps. And it's about mm -hmm. making sure that they understand that, you know, losses are horrific. But what they did was not a cause of that loss. Mm. And it's just giving them that permission that this is a different pregnancy. It is good for you to move. It is healthy for you, both you and for baby that you both move. And we need to look after that body because that body's got to last you to your 90s. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because all of the research, no matter what field you're looking at, whether it's menopause or bone health or brain health or heart health, like exercise really is the magic pill that we have. Oh, absolutely. We want to keep people fit and active and moving as long as possible throughout every life stage. And what's moderate exercise for one person might not be what might be very mild or might be very vigorous for the next person. So do you teach people how to gauge, you know, what yeah. what means what's what does moderate mean to you like at different phases of the pregnancy yeah so so again that's where we <clears> have to kind of and when you're speaking on a you know not on an individual level in a class mm. base for example you know you you are going to have to try and tailor things to people some people who are gym bunnies some people who do not move at all they barely mm. walk to the door of their car so it is about letting them understand okay moderate intensity means when you're exercising uh, you absolutely should be able to talk but you shouldn't be able to sing and we keep mm -hmm. it that simple. That, that's the sweet spot. It's in that zone. That's your moderate intensity. And that's what we need to do. Um, and it's just about them understanding and learning how they can, for some of them, ramp up some exercise. Um, and then for lots of them, it's about making sure the slowdown doesn't start too soon. I've met yeah. loads of women who started the slowdown and they're 22 weeks. And I'm looking at them going thinking, you know, you could have 20 weeks left of pregnancy. It yeah. is a very long time to be sitting on a couch doing nothing. And that's not good for anybody physically or mentally. And I suppose that's the crucial thing in terms of looking after them, thinking it's not just about you. We have to think about baby. We have to think about your health for your lifetime. But we also have to be thinking about your mental health and your mm -hmm. resilience and, and the difference that it can make in terms of those who stay active, cope better physically and mentally throughout the whole pregnancy journey, the birth itself and the recovery afterwards. And that's what we see in the recovery. You can spot the postnatals who managed to stay active through their pregnancy yeah. they're managing overall better their coping strategies are better and that's partly because they were able to stay active so that's where we come in and obviously then for some there are barriers to exercise perhaps is pelvic girdle pain or low back pain and again it's about working with them to get them back on track getting them back moving again as quickly as possible to keep that going brilliant and of course the evidence also says that you know for for uh people who exercise during their pregnancy it's very beneficial for baby as well like better apgar oh. scores and and baby is more likely to grow up to be an exerciser you Absolutely. know if, if mom's exercising during pregnancy so it's it's a win-win situation Absolutely. What's, the, what's the advice that you would give to women just again very generally here who maybe haven't been exercisers but maybe now they're pregnant that they've decided this is the time to really start prioritizing their health but maybe again, they've been on they've been on Dr. Google and they're they're doing these searches like, is it safe for people to start an exercise program in pregnancy in your yeah. experience? Yeah. And I suppose this is where where you're laughing at me and my sense versus nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I mean I do often feel we do have to kind of you know when somebody laughs about something when we're teaching them they will remember that stuff so I always mm-hmm. have to break it down and go yeah okay there is that myth out there that you don't start exercise in pregnancy that's rubbish I say look I don't want you taking up scuba diving or hurling or camogie which for those outside of Ireland are contact sports with that are quite vicious <laughs> fair that's fair you know we don't want them taking up obviously something that's kind of you know going to be obviously dangerous for them but for those who have been couch potatoes perhaps for many years and mm. don't consider themselves in any way fit it is absolutely safe when we're talking about a low-risk pregnancy and then a healthy pregnancy here it is absolutely safe in fact it is imperative that we get started on getting moving Okay, and something like a daily walk, which may have to be very short and it may Mm -hmm. have to be a five minute walk to start with if they really are deconditioned, but that we build that up and we build that up and we build them up. We want them to be hitting their 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity every week. Um, And it's just about giving them that permission that, yes, you can do this. And also we want you in a swimming pool. And maybe that might be easier, particularly for those who may have a larger BMI, who may be finding it harder to move around because of joint issues and sometimes pushing them into a pool is the best thing that we can do for them and I'm always or or let me just clarify gently assisting them in (laughs) also a good option (laughs) we could do that too Michelle (laughs) sense versus nonsense just for clarity (laughs) yes but you know like it is it's about trying to make sure that we get them moving like oftentimes I'll find that the the barrier to the pool is often to do with body image and it's oh I couldn't possibly get into a swimming suit and it's trying to kind of get them used to the idea that actually this is probably the best place for you to exercise right now let's get you going and it doesn't matter that you can't swim a formal stroke let's just get you in the pool because the the warmth of that water can ease out those aches and pains and get Mm -hmm. you moving comfortably and if that works better for you well then fabulous and like that we're then looking at the kind of other barriers you know for some of them um, you know being in the pool can promote more diuresis it means they have to get out to go for a wee and you know saying that in advance going look yes we do expect you're going to have to get out for a wee and I Mm. also want your water bottle to be beside the pool not in your locker because you're going to need to keep yourself well hydrated Mm -hmm. you may very easily overheat in a pool as well I need you to get used to the idea that you're going to duck underwater and get your hair wet that's going to cool you down really really nicely Um, have a snack in your locker just throw your towel around yourself and eat don't Mm. try to get dressed first because the overwhelming heat in a in a pool changing room can really be very off-putting and if you get that little wibbly wobbly feeling afterwards you know that can put you off exercise we know that exercise helps to regulate your blood sugars but any of us can have that feeling of needing to snack after a swim I always do you know Mm. but in pregnancy that can be really amplified and the last thing we want is for somebody to have a negative experience and put them off we need them in the pool and enjoying it again like that there are lots of things online that will say oh you shouldn't do breaststroke when you're pregnant why (laughs) there are no absolutes here okay if breaststroke hurts your simpsons pubis your pubic joint don't do it okay but it's you know it's really just about making sure that we get people in if breaststroke suits you do breaststroke if you know if you like to be on your back then do back backstroke do inverted breaststroke do whatever feels comfortable or if you cannot swim at all you just walk through the water and you make it Mm. up as you go along and you borrow a pool noodle and you float for a little bit okay and it's really just 
just about getting that exercise in on a regular basis. And again, it's these sort of things is about starting habits. Like the danger is if we have nine months of no exercise, getting Mm. back into a habit afterwards is going to be incredibly difficult. We are creatures of habit. We need to keep things going. Okay. And it's getting back to exercise on the other side when you haven't done anything for ages, it's just going to be far too difficult and you're less likely to get back into it, which again is going to have huge um, impacts on your long-term health. Absolutely. So kind of continuing that thread of of doing a little bit of myth busting, Mm. um, pelvic girdle pain, Mm. Um, I I still see obstetricians um, who should know better on social media talking about relaxing. Mm. It's like, so how do you, as as a clinician who knows better, um, how do you challenge that conversation about relaxing and pelvic girdle pain in somebody who says, "But my doctor said that this is what's driving it." Well, I suppose it's a delicate conversation, particularly if you're talking mm. about somebody who may be part of your your team. Mm. Um, but I suppose it really is, I suppose, again, I'll just try and bring it back to basics and go, look, every woman that's booked into the maternity unit in this hospital has relaxing every single one of them. Not all of them will experience pain. Uh, so we cannot be blaming that specific hormone on it. It is much more multifactorial. It is down to lots of other issues that's going on. Um, but I suppose a whole lot of it is, is to try to get them out of the zone of trying to blame something that feels yeah. quite passive and beyond their control and bringing it back into looking at actually, well, this is what we know about pelvic girdle pain is that it's not as structural based as we believed in the past, that there is so much more to it and then bringing them back down to the stress management and the sleep and the movement and the confidence in their body and that's really the biggest thing is about building back their confidence again so much of the stuff online about pelvic girdle pain is very scary when you read it I mean if you type it into Google all of a sudden you're thinking oh when is the occupational therapist coming to like you know measure my house up for grab rails and my wheelchair um, and I mean, that is scary, you know, and it we, is. Know, we know what fear does to pelvic girdle pain. Uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, we know that it only amplifies it. And I think even just having a conversation, like for me, I think the, 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 the missing piece and so many things in life is constipation. As you know, I'm moderately obsessed with it. Moderately? But I think <laughs> we're, we're going with moderately, Miriam. Yes. Um, it could be worse. I rein myself in. I'm just saying. Um. <laughs> I don't think constipation as a perpetuating factor for pelvic girdle pain is talked about enough because if you have an overactive, you know, situation with the pelvic floor and you've got a high stress situation, like for many people, constipation is their stress response. And we Mm -hmm. already know that constipation is a driver for women with back pain anyway. And I just think having good conversations about constipation in pregnancy, particularly if they're on iron supplements, You know, it can be an absolute game changer. And like they have a great bowel movement. You know, they do the things that that we love talking about. They have a great bowel movement and all of a sudden mood is better. Pain is lower. And I just I think we, we need to talk about constipation more. I'm going to step down off my soapbox now, but (laughs) no, I'm totally in agreement with you there, Michelle. Like it is, it's the one thing I find, like, again, when we're thinking about the things that we can teach and the things that we can empower women with antenatally and certainly understanding what normal is and how few women understand what normal is um, and like that I always have the laugh with the our young, my younger colleagues when I'm kind of training them up and kind of saying look you know your patients must be heard you know they have a story and we believe them except when they tell you they're not constipated 
<laughs> and I say, that's the bit when, you know, take your yeah. cynical side on. We need to interrogate. Okay. It, asking, are you constipated is not enough. Um, and I always have to go, look, a normal habit is ideally daily. Mm -hmm. clockwork you would set your watch by it it is easy it happens all by itself and it is satisfying and we always have a giggle about the word satisfying oh yeah should be like that's the the missing element that people aren't getting Um, and I think I know obviously our Rome 3 functional constipation guidelines will say oh three times a week is normal I personally think we are doing people a huge disservice if we settle for that Agree. I think most people can absolutely aim and should achieve a daily habit. I think if we're eating every day, why wouldn't we poop every day? I think those that really has allowed a lot of people to slip through the net and not realize they're constipated because under the frequency element of it, they're not there. They then don't look at the straining elements that come into those guidelines either. But I think if we can get women understanding about their bowels, it is part of what we do with our pelvic girdle pains and our back pains. Yeah, but it's also about what we do in our standard education, teaching them what it is, because I think if we can get this right, we can manage so many things better for those who have prolapse symptoms, any sort of pelvic floor dysfunction. But also you have to think about there's another human being growing inside that woman right now. And we have the opportunity to make sure that they have good bowel habits from the start. So we're getting the next generation going. So, you know, it's win win. You know, you yeah. can't go wrong. That child's much less likely to be a bedwetter when their mammy is more aware. You know, yeah. so it's it's so valuable that that thing. But certainly for our pain patients, the you know the pelvic girdle pains, the back pains, the coccyx pains, like all oh. of those can really really benefit from some basic bowel habits advice. Getting that right, and I always laugh how often my job just boils down to yeah, let's get you pooping better, and then we're done. <laughs> Honestly, just, I mean, you, you have to look sometimes at, at the broader picture of what's happening in the world and you just wonder, you know, if everybody had better bowel habits. Oh, you know. I always make the joke, I could retire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when you look at the, the surgeries that are done, when, you know. Oh, for, yeah. Uh, and you're just thinking, oh, how much of this could be prevented if people just knew what was normal? If we just had lower toilets in every house. <laughs> Uh, you know, know, there's so many, so many Come things the that we can change. Miriam. Come the revolution, it will <laughs> all be different. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. I have another myth busting question for you because this is actually, I got a phone call last week from um, a friend who was, who was pregnant and um, she was told by her midwife that doing pelvic floor muscle training would make the vagina too tight for the baby to come out. Discuss. Um, you can't see my eyes rolling. <laughs> oh, we can hear them. We can good, hear them. Good, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, we're taking deep breath first, okay? Yeah, Just calm, yeah, yeah. Calm. Okay. So well, I suppose in in I in the midwife's defense, <laughs> she probably had all of two minutes to discuss this with a patient, or possibly even less. Um and may not have been able to dilute it down appropriately. Anyway, somewhere or other, whether it was poor information giving or muddled reception, who knows, that's not accurate. We know that actually women do need to find their pelvic floor, but my emphasis Mm. is always on the word find, okay? Mm. And they can learn where it is, get their brain connecting with these muscles and learn how to turn them on and off. So, yes, there are, we both know there's a significant proportion of women who can't turn the pelvic floor off. Um, mm-hmm. 
so it is absolutely valuable to make sure that they're getting that bit of information. That's how I would typically teach it. That yes, we need you to learn how to turn it on and off, but no, you're not going to make birth more difficult for yourself in the opposite way around actually by being more connected and being more aware and knowing how to relax things out we make things easier we're mm. not suddenly going to have Popeye style muscles um you know <laughs> so that, a visual just not, came into my mind yeah <laughs> that's not how it works <laughs> I mean that spinach is good for their iron hey but, <laughs> but no unfortunately the muscles are never going to hypertrophy that much uh, yeah. we know the vagina itself I mean it's more like an accordion the way it expands mm-hmm. out you know so it's no it's not we can use so many other things <laughs> to make sure that birth uh, that baby gets through with as, as little trauma as possible but um, pelvic floor exercises is not the demon here no. um, um, teaching a woman to find them feel where they are be yeah. able to turn them on and off teach her to manage the knack because so many of them if they're managing with hyperemesis I mean you know we are yeah. dealing with lots of stress and conscience because of vomiting coughing sneezing lots of things um, Absolutely. And, and I think for some it may well be appropriate for them to see a pelvic health physio and get a proper internal assessment where we can see exactly what's going on that's yeah. stuff that we do regularly um, yeah. and it can be really valuable as a learning experience for the patient to actually be really uh, confident in what they're doing and then they can head towards labor and birth with a lot less fear um, yeah I mean these are very tiny muscles you know oh, like absolutely. at full strength they're, they're tiny tiny little muscles but you know the other thing I was I, I try to you know point out um is also like a muscle that can contract and relax repeatedly with an emphasis on relax and lengthen, is going to have a great blood supply, is going mm. to recover faster Absolutely. afterwards as well. You know, yep. so it's, there's, there's, as you said at the start, like there's such a lot of fear and misinformation mm. about, about pregnancy and labor and delivery. Yeah. If we switch to the other side of the equation, what would you, you know, Miriam, I'm, I'm appointing you Minister for Health. I'm giving you an unlimited budget, okay, mm-hmm. and, absolute, and absolute power. And all you, you know, everyone, everyone must curtsy. But what would you change about postnatal health? Postnatal. I mean, obviously, you know, I think you're leading the charge in 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 great postnatal, perinatal, and postnatal care. But what do you think would be like a gold standard for somebody giving birth? Now, what would you love to see happen? Well, I think this is where, like, we can't just start postnatally. <laughs> But I had, um, I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> Sorry to be awkward. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, one of yeah. the biggest things we do with women antenatally is preparing them for the postnatal period. Um, yeah. And part of that is about finding pelvic floor and getting their bowels right and all that sort of stuff and making them move comfortably, but also about teaching them a little bit of what to expect in the early stages, whether that is after a vaginal birth, a straightforward vaginal birth, a complicated vaginal birth, or whether it's after a C-section. Um, and How will we manage getting you out of bed? How will you manage with the trapped wind after your C-section? How will you manage that first postnatal poo? Mm -hmm. Okay. But the thing is, and I suppose this is just from working within a maternity hospital, we know postnatal wards are like Grand Central Station. It is so busy. There are so many healthcare professionals trying to come to see a woman who has just done a epic 
epic marathon and she's exhausted trying not to smother a child she is trying mm-hmm. to learn how to feed she's trying to learn how to lift him up without doing any damage she's terrified about this vulnerable little creature how do I bath the baby how do I change the baby someone's come to do a heel prick test somebody wants to look at his his hearing somebody's looking at all the reflexes somebody wants to check his heart somebody's talking to me about this I don't know what I'm doing anymore those women are literally spinning and for and, us, and their hormones have just fallen off a cliff oh absolutely for us to then be landing in and trying yeah. to teach them from scratch <laughs> you're like ah oh, here this is way too late <laughs> so I'd always make the joke about like that where we're talking about trying to find a pelvic floor antenatally for women who have never heard of this before it's like trying to do the woman in bed fours pelvic floor exercises because that does not feel like part of her body yeah. Like, how yeah. do you connect to something that is so swollen um, that, you know, she's just absolutely. And whereas if she knows where those muscles are, she can actually engage them really quite early. And she can get mm-hmm. the flutter going, which gets the blood flowing, which brings down that swelling. And she's much, much happier. But she has to kind of find that antenatally to be able to do that postnatally. So, yeah, most of it, most of the attention I would be putting in antenatally. That has to be it. It has to be prehab. We have to be empowering these women to know Mm -hmm. what to expect because you start talking to them at that stage and I mean they just can't retain anything they really don't you know exhausted yeah you know and so that's always been my philosophy is put in as much um education as you can antenatally get them in there then when I go and I meet somebody who may have had an OAC a third or a fourth degree mm. tear or they might be in urinary retention or there might be another reason why they're complex let's say and I'm having the chat with them but they already know this okay mm. so this is just revision and we can fine-tune the advice to their specific circumstances but I am not starting from scratch going do you know what your pelvic floor is you know there are three openings down there yeah <laughs> Yeah. And trying to get, you know, so that has to be covered antenatally. So I think really the 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 key to it has to start early. I think mm-hmm. postnatally, certainly there are some women who absolutely will need some customized care on a postnatal mm. board. There always will be. And that's absolutely fine. And they will need that little bit more specialized care. For most women, though, who they should be able to know how to turn in bed. We should be teaching yeah. that antenatally. They should be practicing it. So they do it while they're still comfy-ish. Um, and now they, you know, comfier than they will be when they have a C-section. Um, so, yeah, you know, and it means then that there's less fear when they go to practice it in reality. Do that the yeah. first time when you just had a C-section. You know, that's much harder. You know, yeah. practice, it's all about practice. And we have to remember that we learn by physically doing things. Yeah, so absolutely. Just listening to somebody talking about it isn't enough. I need you to now practice that movement. Do it again. What are you doing with your breath? Don't hold your breath. Blow out. Okay. And it's yeah. this sort of practice that we need. So it's a lot of it there. I would also love some more resources put in to allow us to see anybody who wants it that can come back for a proper checkup with a pelvic health physio. Um, mm. Now, obviously, that's not going to be all women, but for you know, there sh- we should um, hopefully be able to allocate more resources that everybody could come. I know there are some countries in the world that do offer blanket um, f- physio. 
again, whether that's very customized for those individual people or mm. whether it's a little bit of a kind of everybody gets the same treatment is the question that I have to say I've yet to get the answers to. Um, but I would love that everybody would get a customized plan that they mm. would have an assessment that we would know what their pelvic floor is up to and they have a plan that they can go off with and work on independently. You know, so for lots of them, they can do, you know, we can give them a lot of independence with that. They like the self-management. They don't want to have to be coming into us lots. And I suppose that's a huge thing we learned over COVID um, that we can be so effective over the phone. Yeah. Um, where yeah. before, I mean, I cringe when I think of all the women I brought in for many's the year for their, oh, come, come back and see me in six weeks or come back and see me in this. And I cringe when I did that. But that's what we thought of at the time that yeah. was physio, that you could not <clears throat> possibly do physio any other way. And now mm. it's amazing when I look at there's some women I have discharged completely fine and I don't know what they look like. Amazing. And <laughs> um, there's some like, you know, typically now our third and fourth degree tears might come in once. Yeah. Some of them might need a second face-to-face, but a lot of them were tweaking and pushing their program on over the phone. And it is so effective and they are so delighted and they don't have to leave their house, their home with their baby. And it's lovely. And it just makes so much more sense. The hassle and the stress of trying to get a a baby out when Mm. you're, you know, a couple of weeks postnatal yourself. Absolutely. The equipment that you need, like for a baby to actually set foot outside (laughs) your door. Like, yeah. it's a long time since I had to do it, but I, I still remember, like, trying to deal with an unwieldy kind of buggy stroller pram situation and, you know, the child screaming in the car seat and, like, the stress of it all. So, like, Absolutely. I think if we ac- acknowledge our role as, as primarily educators yes, and then kind of filtering through into, yeah, well, who is actually going, who actually does need that reassurance of the face-to-face and that hmm. connection mm-hmm. or the manual therapy or the kind of, like, the actual, let me get eyes on you doing this movement. Mm-hmm. But... It's it's a huge saver in terms of that person's available resources and resilience, but also your resources as well, because you are finite. Um, yeah. There's only well, one Miriam Campbell. for health, there'll be lots more, don't worry. <laughs> we'll be starting the official cloning program um, straight away. <laughs> um, that's, that's, yeah, I'm visualizing that again now. Um, so can I just ask Miriam then for like at your hospital, um, do the res- do people do the respiratory physios like see folks like after a C-section or a cesarean hysterectomy or things like that for like, are, are we still doling out incentive spirometers and do they have an awareness of kind of pelvic health and intra-abdominal pressure management with all of that as well? Well, generally speaking, where I am that we would cover that end of things. Um, okay. But like you'll find, I mean, a C-section is such a low incision. It yeah. does not cause any sort of respiratory compromise for the vast majority of patients. Um, where somebody has had a significant blood loss or maybe has had an ICU stay, let's say, for example, or has been kept, um, you know, kind of has had one on one nursing for a while. So mm. Then certainly they're more likely to be needed uh, yeah. to be seen from a respiratory point of view or where there's an underlying respiratory condition, significant yeah. condition. Uh, they may well need some input, but the vast majority of them don't need it. They're absolutely right. fine. Um, if obviously, thankfully, we don't have too many cesarean hysterectomies, but you know, for the more significant surgeries, they're more likely to get a little bit more input there and may well do. Yeah. But for your typical C-section, they don't have respiratory compromise. This incision is too far from diaphragm to really cause any sort of atelectasis. Um, and really, once they're up and moving, that shouldn't yeah. be an issue for them. Perfect. You know? Um. So, like again hopefully most of those should hopefully know how to manage those pressures because they learned it antenatally and that's it's in their system already that's the plan 
So what I'm hearing you say, Miriam, is that antenatal education really is the way, the truth, and the the light. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you just, I kind of feel that for every every couple of minutes you spend teaching a woman there, you just gain so much. Like the payoff from that is Mm -hmm. so much more spectacular. And it is so, so much more valuable for that woman than anything you give her postnatally. Yeah, because absolutely. she's only able to retain so much. There is so much going on for her at that stage. I mean, there's just no ability to retain any information. No, you're I mean, you're exhausted. You've you've been, as you said, you've 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 run the equivalent of a marathon. Um, hormones have just dropped precipitously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're trying to you're trying to navigate, I think, and especially for first time mums. Yeah, it's, it's such a change. I mean, yeah. it really is. Um I think I think we've covered everything, Minister. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to see physios um, and again in the US uh, pelvic health OTs who are working in this field? Is there anything else that we need to factor into our antenatal education to make postnatal recovery a better place for all of us, both patient and provider? I think some of it is about expectations. And managing that. And I suppose a common theme that I see so much is where women are feeling like they have to do it all. Yeah. Um, and whether this is our antenatals who are having pelvic girdle pain, are not able to walk, not able to exercise, not able to do anything, but who are their house twice a day. Um, and you're, you know, having that chat of, look, you're pregnant. That is a state of health. You are not a delicate flower. You are not broken. But right now you are sore and you are not managing to reach your exercise um, uh, guidelines. So we need you to think about who's going to help, who's going to do your hoovering, because it is not your responsibility. There has to be somebody else that you know over the age of seven who can manage this. Um, and I have to be really blunt with some of them because they they yeah. take this on. And like that on the other side of things, where we have in the postnatal period, where we have women who feel they have to be superwoman and I think for us it's about coming back down to reality and giving them that expectation of your early days with your baby are going to involve lots of snuggles I want you outdoors for little walks but those walks are for mental health in that first Mm. two weeks that's not about physical fitness that's about sanity that's just because you need to be outside and you need to escape the four walls um but that you know Physical fitness can come, okay, that can come after that. But in those first two weeks, it's really about saying, can we avoid pointless standing? You know, and I always have to explain, pointless standing is when you're stood there, there's no good reason for you to be standing. Why are you doing it? Could you lie down and recline? So for your first 10 days or two weeks of your baby's life, if you can avoid pointless standing, and obviously that does not mean bed rest because we have to go, look, you're still a high VTE risk. You mm-hmm. know, get up and do what you need to do for your baby, okay? Hopefully somebody's going to bring you a cup of tea every now and again and be a bit nice to you. You lie yourself down, take the weight off your lady bits, elevate, think taking that swelling down and if we avoid that pointless standing we can do so much whereas I'd have women who tell me they're gone off to the supermarket straight from leaving the maternity hospital or the next day they're wandering around the shopping centers and I'm looking at them going expectations okay this is not what your first two weeks should look like somebody else can get the groceries you must know somebody who can help. And I do know, you know, we'd always talk about it takes a village and it yeah. takes a village to mind a mammy. And that's one yes. of my big things. And that can be hard when women feel that they're quite isolated. They don't live anywhere near where they grew up. They may be in a completely different country. 
And that's really hard. And we know that that kind of ramps up their risk of postnatal depression. Um, yep. And it's about trying to find, well, where is that support? Somebody, can we look at neighbours? Can we look at mammy groups locally? Somebody is there and would love to help if they knew if they knew who they could help. Um, and it's sometimes it's a matter about giving people the advice that, look, it's okay to ask for help and to be very specific with your help. Yes. You know, that this is what I want. Rather than, you know, people will ask, can I do anything for you? And the standard Irish response certainly is, ah, no, no sure, I'm grand. No, I'm grand. I'm grand. I'm grand. I'm grand. <laughs> My head's falling yeah. off, but I'm grand. Okay, yeah. it's be fine. <laughs> Whereas actually it's really about going, yeah, well, I need the stairs hoovered because I can't do that. Could you chop me some vegetables because I really need to eat something more nutritious than a slice of toast and this baby won't let me cook right now. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it is. Yeah. And it's also that slice of toast is making me bunged up and I need that veg to get me poo. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sometimes about being being yeah. that blunt and saying, look, this is what health you are going to need. You're going Absolutely. to need to have this. You're going to need to be okay asking for help. Each of <laughs> us has a time in our life where we ask for help and there's times in life when we can give help and it's just about getting people comfortable asking for help and taking it and it's about understanding where they're going to progress through that those first couple of weeks are going to be kind of you know lovely and lazy and you know snuggly and and yeah. to enjoy that baby smell because you'll never get it again yeah <laughs> and then that as the, their world can expand after that two weeks but that it's absolutely fine to be really nice and chilled and looking then at return to exercise, I suppose this is another one where, oh, yeah, this magical six weeks, you can do everything you like. Um, oh. Yeah, it's amazing the difference that happens overnight. Um, and it's really, again, it's another myth that we need to bust. And again, it's one where they've been to the doctor and the doctor has gone, yeah, you can do everything because it's six weeks. <laughs> I'm and laughing so I don't cry. <laughs> and, you know, it's so again, when we've talked to them antenatally about what that timeline is going to be like, and, you know, if it's your average Josephine Soap who just wants to get back to normal stuff, that's fine. But mm. when you've got someone who is a fairly serious athlete, then yeah. that's more of a challenge, you know, and Absolutely. it's about making sure that we're both speaking the same language and mm. that we're looking at what's what is realistic and having an, a realistic goal in mind so that we're working towards that. Um, so all of these things have to come into it. But again, in terms of that preparation antenatally, um, because the more we've lost in terms of yeah. whether it's just we've lost flexibility, we've lost glute strength. We've, you know, there's there's so much, even it's Absolutely. just foot and ankle stability has gone down because, yeah. you know. And, Shoe size so, may have changed. Yeah. There's so yeah. much, there are arches, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's so much that can change. Um, mm -hmm. And then when we're looking at, okay, well, right, well, this is how we're going to get you back in a phased basis. Um, so it, it just takes a little bit of negotiation, but it, it is another myth that needs busting because that six weeks yeah. isn't magic. Um, but unfortunately, we do see lots of people who maybe misunderstand that. and Absolutely. Um, and I think particularly if they're breastfeeding. Yes, you know, because oh. like people do go back, they're breastfeeding, they go back. And again, with every respect to GPs, because Lord knows they have to know a little bit about everything. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they don't know enough about the important things that affect 51 percent of people on the planet. Hello, mm -hmm. postnatal recovery and menopause. But anyway, um, I think part of the education that you're, you've been talking about, you know, to, to have something to show, like, again, for your athletes, particularly maybe something like the return to running guidelines. 
And again, I'd refer listeners back to the interviews that I've done here with Gronya Donnelly and Emma Brockwell about this as well, because that's a great framework to say, oh, look, fabulous. we have a we have a plan. We have an evidence based plan for you. And this is how we can structure your return. You know, bringing in obviously measuring things like GH and PB and all the rest of it. But like, you know, you've got a, you've got a plan literally for those first 12 weeks to get back, you know, and to have that kind of three month vision, I think, is quite useful as well, because people then accept that as, oh, OK, well, that's better than like a six week. You know, it gives me time to gradually build back up because so many people pick up these fairly significant, you know, tendon injuries, particularly if they do go back too soon to mm-hmm. high level sport. So I would say like whether it's, you know, kind of, again, your your normal quote unquote exerciser um, who hopefully would, would include all of us um, or your elite athlete who's looking to get back. I think it's really important that we do kind of have that vision of a perinatal year that's yeah. really, really grounded in good education the whole way through, ideally conception to, I would say, at least to the child's three month, you know, <laughs> birth yeah. anniversary, but ideally longer than that. And I, I really think that we need to to be aware of the evidence out there that supports that approach as well. And um, yeah. we're not just we're not just plucking this out of the air. You know, yeah. there's 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 hardcore evidence behind us. And and I think it's that's why I think like having a conversation with somebody like you is so important because you're literally at the cold face of this. You're not only seeing people going through this perinatal journey, but you're also seeing the people who've maybe been through it in the past and now they're in their perimenopausal zone. And you're seeing them now kind of, you know, maybe coming in for surgical repairs of issues. And we know that a lot of those issues can be traced back to obstetric misadventure, shall we say, and maybe that lack of education in the meantime. So I think what you're doing in terms of empowering women with education about how their body works, what it needs. And also, I don't want to say giving them permission, but I'm going to say almost like, compelling them to realize that you will need to ask for help you know yeah. whether that's helping stocking your freezer beforehand or hoovering the stairs you know mm. so I think that's really important because you're doing it all day every day mm. and I think you know to to get that message out is vital so you know give Miriam your number one vote everybody <laughs> <laughs> at election time that's all I'm saying but it is it, it all comes down to the really basic I mean so yeah. much of what we do foundation is, is so simple and it's really if we can connect that woman to her breath get her breathing I mean and that's something we didn't even mention in this so far you know like but again a big thing that we would do antenatally teach them yeah. how to breathe how to poo, yes. how to find your pelvic floor and then bingo you know so much more can kind of come from there but again like where you're mentioning there about perimenopause but you know some of our women are perinatal and perimenopausal absolutely uh, you know i mean what what's that you are because we, we are seeing an increasing age oh, at first birth yeah you know and yeah. and when you're postnatal and you're perimenopausal like that's a whole different roller coaster yeah absolutely you know, you know? so it, it does i mean obviously that adds to the complexity of things mm. um but it is again it's something that we just need to keep on keeping you know keep that conversation going with women and making yeah. sure that they have those avenues they know where to look for help um, yeah. and like that where you know again finishing something at three months just doesn't cut it 
you know, no. for a lot of these women, they don't know they have problems until they get back doing something more intense or they don't know until they get back to work and they realize that actually wind control was more of a problem than they realized. They didn't care at home, but now they're at work. Yeah. They're thinking, oh, wow, we can't manage this. So I suppose these are things that where, you know, we have to make sure that people understand how to get help. And, um, mm. like, you know, we take self-referrals up to a year. So it gives Brilliant. them that sort of window to get back to sport, to get back doing what they want and make sure that they are absolutely confident that there aren't issues that maybe we hadn't recognized earlier mm. on in their journey when life was more quiet. Um, <laughs> but <now> that... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quiet in some ways. <laughs> um, and it's just really about trying to make sure that they can get that help and that they will then look for that help and not settle. You know, yeah. too many women uh, in the past were settling for, well, this yeah. is the way it is. This is an inevitable part uh, where it's <sighs> so many more women now. It's fabulous to see they won't yes. settle. But there's still, there's still a cohort that do. There, there is still a cohort that do. But also, I think this is why we need to normalize these conversations, because mm. too many women think that they're the only ones. Yeah. As well, who are dealing with this or. As you said, they've been told that this is this is normal after you have a baby. This is a normal part of getting older. And it's so restrictive physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, we know there's that bi bi-directional relationship between mental health and pelvic health. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it can almost be such an easy fix, oh, you know. Yeah. And you're just, yeah. you can you literally just change people's entire lives. I would say not only mentally and physically, but also just even socioeconomically in terms of isolation, their ability to go out and have a job, to participate mm -hmm. in exercise. So it's just I think I think this conver these conversations are, are really important and that we just again, just normalize, um, normalize talking about good pelvic health or, or Absolutely. not or where to go if you don't have good pelvic health, because we all know the pelvic floor is responsible for everything anyway. <laughs> everything everything <laughs> everything <laughs> miriam gamble future minister for health and ruler <laughs> of us all um with you know just i just want you to remember with great power comes great responsibility so you know before the the constipation <laughs> interrogation forces land on our streets um <laughs> thank you like i mean so many clinical pearls um so much sense you know, and, 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 nonsense. and dispelling, and I would say dispelling nonsense. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll go with that. Um, so I'm very, very grateful. I would recommend for, for people who found this conversation intriguing and inspiring, as I said, check out the conversations with Gronya Donnelly and Emma Brockwell that I've done on postnatal recovery. And I would also throw in, maybe go back and review Sinead Dufour's conversation that I had with her about uh, pelvic girdle pain because I think they will all tie in beautifully and stay tuned for an upcoming episode with Rebecca Seagraves who will also talk about postnatal recovery and being trauma aware I think it's a great time to be working in women's health in general and pelvic health particularly because we have big brains like yours in the field Miriam Gamble so thank you very much thanks very much Michelle <laughs> thanks everybody I will see you in the next episode and until then celebrate Muley Eberty Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you prefer to watch, all the videos of the interviews will be uploaded onto YouTube. If you'd like to learn more, there's a full suite of online courses on women's health, including courses on female pelvic pain rehab, female hormonal health, oncology rehab, and more. 
And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Michelle Lyons underscore Muley Eberty, for special offers and announcements. Until the next time, celebrate Muley Eberty. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.